All right, 2 Corinthians 5. This is Paul talking to a young church. This was actually the lead passage that Sean brought to us last week when he taught us. I'm going to basically give you the same passage. We're going to take it in a different direction. And this is verse 17. This is the word of the Lord for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. All right. Clearly, reconciliation, whatever it is, is incredibly important to Paul in this moment. He mentions it five times in this very short passage. Um, it's not a word we use very often, reconciliation. And we don't use it in our common language anyway. I mean, if you're a bookkeeper or a CPA, you probably use the word all the time. Reconciliating or, or reconciling the books is where you put two documents next to each other and you're looking for agreement. Agreement is the goal. You're looking for harmony between the books, right? We use it in marriage talk sometimes. When a marriage breaks apart in divorce, a lot of times it will fall under the legal heading of irreconcilable differences, right? Where there was no balancing the books relationally. Um, there was no harmony to be found. No coexistence was possible. And then we, we reconcile with each other, right? But here's the big question. How bad does somebody have to be to you for them to be irreconcilable? Like, how bad do they have to be? Can someone do something that is so bad that you revoke love cutting them off pretty much for good? And when you forgive people, because forgiving is the shape of the Christian life, it's the path of the church. When you forgive people, do you have to be friends with them? That's a big question. I get it a lot. Do you just go back to normal? I mean, even if normal was functional, do you go right back? See, because legacy is a church of imperfect people, these aren't hypothetical questions. Certainly, you've had people withdraw their love from you and cut you off. And certainly you've done it to others, right? You've cut people off. You've pulled away from them. You've had irreconcilable differences spring up between you and others where you can't dial in any agreement at all. Certainly this has happened to you. Certainly you've had friends that have become enemies. I mean, that's not just for high school, is it? It happens. Certainly people have hurt you and never apologized. Maybe they've never even explained themselves. Maybe they think you're the one that's the problem. Certainly you've been betrayed. And betrayal has a special sting to it, does it not? I mean, first, you're hurt because of the betrayal itself. Betrayal is a pain. It's a suffering, a very, a very distinct one. But then there's an aftershock that comes later on, right? The shame of you allowing yourself to get hurt. You got got, right? And that is a pain as well. And so what we do is we insulate ourselves. We say, never again. Never again are we going to let that person get that close. 
Never again are we going to let anyone get that close. Never again are we going to feel that pain again. So we're really no different than the rest of the world in the fact that this room, like most rooms, are filled with people that hurt each other. We are hurt and we do hurt. We're just like everybody else. And when we're on the receiving end of someone else acting up and being villainous and hurting us, it can be really hard for us to decipher what love looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what reconciliation looks like. I mean, what does it look like to move forward with somebody that has hurt us? Reconciling can be difficult. It can be complicated and messy. I mean, maybe you were tired of forgiving somebody that just keeps messing up and doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe you're upset because they're not putting any energy into this thing called change. They're not interested in it, right? Maybe you're afraid of getting hurt again. Maybe you're out of tears, out of patience. Listen, the Bible is vocal on this subject, like it is on so many real-world subjects for us. The Bible is vocal on this, and it's vocal because the gospel itself, if the gospel is anything, friends, it's a story of reconciliation, if it's anything. The gospel is a story of enemies becoming friends, not because God ignores our hatred, but it's because he deals with our hatred. We had irreconcilable differences with a holy God, and he reconciles us to himself, and he does all the heavy lifting, and we do none. He balanced the books. He did so with his blood. He brought harmony to us, and we have agreement now. We have received this thing that Paul is calling the ministry of reconciliation, and it is a ministry, isn't it? And now, because of this gospel of reconciliation, it kind of plops us all together. It brings us into close proximity with each other where, wait for it, we hurt each other. And then we reconcile. And we live in this world where very predictably the world's going to hurt us and dent and scratch us as well. So this is intensely practical. It's very important. For instance, it's good for you to know as a Christian that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. We conflate them a lot. Kind of blend them together, use those words interchangeably. They're not the same thing, right? When you forgive someone who has hurt you, You have to ask the question, sometimes, should we go back to normal or is normal not to be had? And let me just answer that real quickly. Sometimes when you forgive somebody for hurting you, for doing damage, sometimes you can go back to normal. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes normal won't be had. I mean, does that shock you that a pastor would say that? That sometimes you can't go back to normal? And sometimes we won't have a a normal that works until Jesus comes back and resets everything and gives us a a new normal. It's true. You have situations like child abuse or rape or sexual abuse, or I would even lump some kinds of emotional abuse in. Sometimes you're not getting normal back. Sometimes normal wasn't even all that good. right? Especially if there's no repentance. What would normal even look like? Even when forgiveness is authentic, and there's real tears, there's real repentance, normal may not be had again. As a church, as a Christian, you're called to traffic very heavily in forgiveness. But you have to be wise with trust. But can we just be honest for a moment? A lot of our inclination is to always say 
that normal cannot be had, to look at every slight as if it is irreconcilable, to look at every wrong thing that was done as something that could never, ever, ever be fixed. Sure, you could forgive it, but you could never look them in the eye again. It doesn't even have to be something heavy like abuse. It could just be a snub or slander or just someone being a jerk, and we just can't envision reconciliation. And I think that's where the gospel can really work well on our hearts. There's this fascinating passage in John 13. If you have a Bible and you can flip there quickly, go there. If not, he'll put it up on the screen for us. John 13, Jesus is, he's in his ninth inning here. And he's saying some things to the disciples that are going to end up being some of his last words. And he says this in verse 21. We'll jump in in 21. He says, after saying these things, what are these things? Well, I mean, he just washed their feet. So their feet are still air drying, right? (laughs) They're right outside of this moment. It just happened. After saying these things, I'm sure he's got their attention. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Listen, I love this. It's so great. I'm sure they were uncertain. I'm sure they had their suspicions, right? I mean, isn't that how you would be if you were in there? It's not like you would have scratched your head and thought, well, who could he be talking about? You would have thought, I don't know who he's talking about, but I got about two or three people I put on that list, right? You'd all have someone in your head. I bet they had a suspicion. One of his, I love this, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. (laughs) Okay, Peter gets his attention. John. John, and John looks over, ask ask him, ask him. Why do you think Peter wants him to ask him so much? He's thinking it might be him, right? It can't be me. Could it be me? I've had my moments, you know? So I want you to gauge the temperature of this room. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, into Jesus. And Jesus said to him, or not into Jesus, but Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Okay, Judas is about to betray Jesus. Peter is about to collapse. He's about to deny Christ a few times. And here's the thing, Jesus knows both are going to happen. He's aware. Listen, this moment... It's not what you think when you see Da Vinci's work, The Last Supper, right? You've seen it where Jesus is in the middle and you, you symmetrically you have six disciples on one side and six on the other and they're all wearing different colored robes. They all look really clean, don't they? Like they have clean feet now. They have clean, like, like they all drove luxury sedans to get there and they're talking about their devotional that morning. They all look like they're so philosophical and well put together. Nope, that's not what it was. We know that already. They're angling in that moment. They're looking to be number one. They're suspecting the people across the room. They have two goals. Get Jesus' endorsement, cut out the competition. (laughs) 
Sounds harsh. You need to remember, they just had a little bit of a thing, a little bit of a fight with James and John because they were trying to be the bestest on Team Jesus. And I got found out. That just happened. So what does Christ do to settle all the infighting? He washes their feet. That'll do it. That'll do it as he shows them what leadership looks like, what grace looks like, what the gospel looks like in that moment. There is a mood in this room. Feelings are hurt. They're convicted of their competitiveness. And now Jesus is even about to start talking about, I'm about to leave. You can't come with me. He's never said anything like that before. He's talking about how they're about to betray him. It's not like the painting at all. If the church in this upper room is full of villains in this moment, we need to know that the church in this room is no different, right? We're no different. I'm exposed. We're exposed in a passage like this because we're just like them. We're just like them. You can't read this and put yourself in the room like you'd be the one that would rebuke them and challenge them and remind them of the gospel. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Betrayal is in our bloodstream. Villainy is in our bloodstream. And here's what's additionally important about the hurt that we give and the hurt that we receive, right? Whenever we receive hurts that are significant and shape us, and we don't handle those in a gospel-shaped way, that will land on other people, right? It will land on other people. This is how I find a lot of people entering community, not entering a church service. This is just a service. This isn't community. This is just something community does. But for those who are looking to get involved in a community, a lot of times they're limping. They they're still have echoes from the last time they gave that thing a shot, and it didn't work out so well for them. They're still hurting from it. Never again, echoing in their mind. It becomes a mantra. Never again am I going to let someone get that close. Never again am I going to share my life that deeply. I mean, I just want you to consider if you were in a moment with one or two people of the same sex, it's what we call a DNA group or your best friend or, or, or a close friend, we'll just say that. Right before you put something on the table that can't be unsaid, that can't be pulled back, right before you what would feel like an overinvestment of your soul, right before you put something out there, do you not stop for a second and think, oh, but the last time I did this. That's, that's why your heart rate's so high. That's why you're so nervous. It's because you got burned. But the truth is, is because of this, because we insulate ourselves, everyone around us isn't getting all of us. We're just too afraid that we're going to get hurt, right? Everyone becomes a potential enemy. Potential betrayal is everywhere. Friends are nowhere. So in hopes of protecting ourselves, we kind of move against the grain that community is supposed to move. That's why you might be present in community, but only partially invested, partially helpful, partially known, partially joyful. Because everyone in here is carrying some hurt from a past damage, right? Everyone in here has dents that have not totally gotten popped out yet. Scratches that haven't been fixed. We were raised imperfectly by imperfect people in imperfect circumstances, in an imperfect world. We just were. And for some of us in here, we've had significant hurts. And have they not shaped who we are to this day? Doesn't it form how you look at the world, how you look at your spouse, how you look at love, justice? It forms us. Horrible things have happened to some of us. Statistically, a fourth of you have probably been abused to some degree. 
No doubt that's had effects on you today. That's why a lot of you are really uncomfortable right now. Like I'm going to make you raise your hand or something, right? I'm not. But just ask yourself, who do you have irreconcilable differences with? Are they in this room? Are they in another sanctuary? Are they in your family? Is it your spouse? There are other good questions we can ask, too. I mean, when is enough enough? And how quick are we supposed to forgive somebody? Do you have to be really quick on that? What if they're not even sorry that they hurt you? What if they refuse to change? Again, what if they say it's you that did it and not them? These are gritty questions. I would say, in fact, without the gospel of reconciliation, without what God has done for you and me through the person of Christ, you can't answer these questions. The world doesn't have any answers for these questions. Not any that are noble. We have to have this gospel shaped like reconciliation. Because God solves a problem that we have. It was our problem. We made ourselves an enemy of God, and he makes peace with us at his cost. He balanced the books, and he did it with his blood. And it was our problem. He came to us when we were villains and made friendship with us. There is a peace treaty between God's people and God, but that's a one-sided peace treaty. He brought it to us. It's our problem. He's the one that brought agreement and harmony. Let's look at what Jesus says right after this. Their feet are probably dry by now, but he keeps talking. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. So they're, they're probably sitting on the edge of their seat, something new, listening to this guy for three-something years, something new, right on. He says, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, listen. if I was sitting in the room there, I would have thought, that's not new. That's not new. He must be tired. Somebody help him. That's not new. Someone let him know that that's as old as Moses. Moses was saying that back. In fact, I went back to track it down. It's in Leviticus. Stay where you're at. Don't move. It says, this is Moses, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord. God is already speaking through Moses saying the same thing. See, it's not new. But it's kind of important that we understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm giving you something new, right? One way is the way that we commonly use the word all the time, right? Like, hey, there's a new restaurant. Got a new pair of shoes. There's a new stoplight. New show on Netflix is new. It wasn't there before, right? New also in the Bible, and in this case, means something that was already in existence, but it's been refreshed to where it it looks new. It's informed differently. I was talking to my kids about this the other day. We were talking about first cars in high school. My second car totaled my first. My second car was this awesome looking, it was a magnet, this car. It was a red Ford Escort wagon, right? And that thing, I, wasn't a, I was a little reckless with it and made a lot of mistakes. And there was dings and dents all on the front of it. So what do I do? Instead of getting it fixed, I go get one of those black vinyl bras. You remember when that was a thing? And kind of strap that to it. So I, ha- I had one of those on my car. And I would tell people I got a new front end. Got a new front end. Look at that. It was just a vinyl bra strapped to the front of the car. Or my favorite, I got a new, I got a new sound system which all it was was one of those little things that you put on the front of your car where you push it and the face comes off, right? I got one of those aftermarket thing. I put on like on a Saturday afternoon. Same old speakers, same old wiring. I just got a little, little thing in the, in the dash. It looked new. 
It's new. It's not new. It's refreshed. It's remixed. That is the kind of new that Christ is talking about right here. He's saying, guys, I'm about to take an old truth and it's about to be informed by something I'm about to do. The cross is coming. It will reformat what love will look like forever. I'm going to give you something new, a new command. You love not like you've loved each other. Don't love like mom and dad loved you. Don't love like like the best that you've ever seen love ever expressed. You love like I've loved you. Now that's new. It's totally new. It's important for us because when you and I were born, we love as the world defines it for us. That's the only thing we knew to do. Uh, That's the only way we knew to love. It's just how the world told us it should be carried out. We develop affection for people and for things, but that can be lost fairly easily, can it? Sure. We can make deposits. We can make withdrawals. Friends can be mean. We lose them. Spouses can cheat. We lose them. Love leaks depending on the actions of those whom we love, right? That's informed by the world. Love is a feeling. It's a a gut thing. It can subside. It can be inflamed. It all depends on the object of our love, which is why we can fall in and out rather quickly. See, the world says that love has a sort of mechanics or thermodynamics to it, and that is I will love you. I will make a payment as long as there is a return on my investment. I will pay as long as there's an ROI to what I'm depositing in you. And I will even give credit where I don't think I'm getting any back right now. But it better be on the hope that I am going to get love later on down the road. But as soon as I feel like I'm not going to get a good ROI, not a good return on everything I'm putting in, as soon as I feel like that, I'm going to pull back my investment. I'll shut the account down. I will fall out of love. Right? And isn't this what happened to you and your enemies that used to be friends? Didn't you give them a chance? You did, didn't you? I know you did. Didn't you give them credit, give them the benefit of the doubt? Sure you did. For a long time probably. And then the ROI went negative. Love is withdrawn. The account is closed. Trust is gone. Forgiveness is something we place on the back burner. We secretly know we need to deal with it, but today's not that day. Today is not that day. By the way, this is why romantic movies are so attractive to us, especially the ones that hold up this view of love that looks like it's unconditional, like this unflappable love that can never, it suffers nothing, you know. The reason we love that is because our hearts hunger for it. Listen, unconditional love, that belonged to God and the gospel long before it did Hollywood. Hollywood took something from the gospel that we were all created to have an echo of in our soul, which is this desire to come into contact with a love that will never fail. That's why we love those movies so much. Jesus enters our world as an act of love and uses his life, death, and life to redefine what love ought to be. He has given us something new. New. Now love is not just a feeling. It's a committed action that is uphill. It does move against the grain. It's no longer a transaction that's expecting a return. Right? Now love walks across the room and invests in us when we don't deserve it, even when we don't want it. Love is different than we thought. You see, this is the gospel of reconciliation. We've received it, the ministry of it. We carry the ministry of reconciliation to others. We carry the message of reconciliation to others. 
where Jesus is the reconciler and the reconciliation payment. We didn't settle the accounts. His blood settled the account. He did it. It's his grace that balances the books. I think that's an important little piece of theology for us, and I'll tell you why. It's not like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right, where they're both just throwing rocks at each other. And if you were to try to go in and, and fix whatever's going on, it, you would never find, like, a total innocent person and a, a total, and a total villain over here. It, it's not like that. It's not like that in anything, really, right? I mean, there's always going to be a complicitness on both parties. But not so with our cosmic hatred with God. That is one-sided. Certainly, God has anger, expressed anger against sin. But he committed no crimes against us. The war we have with God is a unilateral one from our position. This is why it's important. It's important for those of us who look at our enemies and those who have damaged us and said, I didn't do anything. That's not on me. I didn't create this mess. It's not my problem. I had nothing to do with that. It's important for us because I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you had nothing to do with that, honestly. And that's why reconciliation is perfect for you. That's why the message in the ministry of reconciliation is such a perfect fit for you as the innocent person. I mean, let's just go back to these guys for just a moment in the upper room. How long do you think it took them to start fighting and cussing each other out after Jesus left? About six minutes? We have a rosy view of them. I want you to imagine, I mean, Judas ended up killing himself, so he was out of the picture. Had he not, just suppose, he did not, and Peter bumps into him on the next week at Kroger, spin class, or something like that. How do you think that would have gone down? Think there would have been forgiveness? Reconciliation? What about their first pastor's retreat together? Right? When James and John saddle up and they try to run the thing. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm fine being here, but who made you guys the boss? And then they flip around and say, well, who made you the boss? I bet it took them no time at all to get after each other. And then I'm sure that they remember the time where their feet was wet. And Jesus knew that he was going to be dented and dinged and hurt. And he still offers this gospel of reconciliation. And then it starts to form them as a people. We're the same. We're engineered to collide with each other. And the gospel's engineered to handle that, to deal with it. Jesus leaves us a new commandment to love differently. We were reconciled to reconcile. And now when we look at the villains around us, at least we can do it through the eyes of Christ as if he was hanging from the cross, the one who washed the feet of villains. So listen, if you're unable or unwilling to celebrate this gospel of reconciliation between God and you, if that's just something you can't find yourself able to do, you better saddle up for a lonely life, a lonely one, because you'll never be able to give others this ministry and message of reconciliation if you can't receive it yourself. You can't. The only way to love others well and forgive others well and reconcile is to receive those very same things from the Lord. Because the gospel that we extend to others is very true for us. God never intended for you to forgive and rebuild with people outside of his gospel. That's why it's been so hard for some of you. But when you're convinced that God loves you, you're able to love others with no strings attached. This is super important for us as a church because look around. 
we're going to hurt each other. We're going to misunderstand each other. We're going to be passive-aggressive with each other, aren't we? And we're going to be passive, and we're going to be aggressive. And we're going to not tag each other. Come on. And we're going to forget each other. And we're going to purposely leave each other out. We're going to forget each other. We're going to slander each other, hurt each other, say something mean. You will be failed if you are part of the church. You will be. But here's the truth that you can take to the bank. You were just as bad. We are just as bad. We're not just among people who have been hurt. We hurt. And it is when we hurt that Jesus found us. That's when he found us. Listen, this, this is not the way that the world handles hatred, is it? I mean, love says to you, I will sacrifice for you even if you really hurt me. Even if you really hurt me. I'll cover the distance even if you don't put the work in. I'll work hard even if you stab me in the back. I won't ignore the pain, but I'll deal with it. And you and I will move forward together. That's gospel love. That's not what the world does. So if we get back to the hard question, does this new commandment require that everything just go back to normal? And here's the difference, I think, between reconciliation and forgiveness. And listen, getting this messed up has caused a lot of havoc in the church and a lot of havoc in the world. So listening here is going to save me an email or two. It's going to save you from a lot of angst. This gets confused super easily. And even if I do a great job right here, some of you are still going to have questions. And I'll be happy to answer them. Okay? Forgiveness is your heart's attitude before the Lord. Right? Before the Lord... And your resolve not to hold an angry demand or a vindictive justice over somebody's head. It's, it's a releasing of those things. It's like your soul's open hand. That's forgiveness, right? And it's going to take some work, too. In fact, some of you have been hurt so dramatically and significantly that forgiveness is more of a journey than a one-stop thing, right? You have to keep coming back to it, don't you? You, you need to know that's normal, by the way. That's normal. Some of you today are going to have to forgive somebody for the 93rd time. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with you. If you've sustained significant damage, you can count on forgiveness being something that's going to take a while. Because feelings return. They just kind of find their way back. Anger and frustration, it circles back. It's what we call looping. We all loop, right? It's when you walk into a room and you look across the room and you see that person. You're like, God, I hate that dude. I hate that guy, right? And then you catch yourself. You catch yourself and you're like, but, uh, okay, but God, but you were good and you freed me. And you came and your blood balanced the books. So, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit that I can have endurance. And then you even pray for that person, right? You pray for them to be blessed. You feel good. You actually genuinely feel good, right? You're like, okay, okay. And then you go to the bathroom and you come back and you see that person again in the same room. And you're like, oh, but I do hate that person. It's looping. It takes a while. If it's a significant thing, it takes a while. And this is going to be maybe difficult as well, but something that's also true about forgiveness is that it only occurs where there is true repentance. Hear me now. If the one who hurt you doesn't even know that they hurt you, you're going to have a hard time forgiving them. You might overlook that, but forgiveness is a two-party motion. It requires both parties. Now, in Proverbs 19.11, it says something very valuable for all of us. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger. 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Listen, this is what's going on. When people hurt you and you can't move on, it's a significant hurt, and it's a pervasive problem with this person. The most loving thing you could possibly do is bring it to their attention and lead them towards repentance. That's the most loving thing you can do, right? And by the way, that's the first step in church discipline. So whenever we have partnership classes here, we might touch this. I've said it from the stage a few times. That's all church discipline is. There's no boogeyman there. It's not like anyone's getting kicked out of a church service or anything. It's just walking up to somebody and saying, listen, what you did was horrible. It hurt me. It hurt them. Or what you did just hurt them. Or I saw that thing you did. And just lead them towards repentance. That's church discipline. That's the first step in it, right? When you see sin, love the person. But listen, if you're offended and they didn't sin against you, they just bugged you, they don't need to repent. You need to get over it, right? If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I think you need to repent for this thing that you did because whenever you laugh, your laugh does this thing in my ears and it really hurts my, and I just need you to repent and turn from that and say you're sorry. Listen, you don't have to say you're sorry for that, right? There was no sin. You only repent where there's sin, okay? Some of you just gotta get over it. Sometimes there is an offense and you can overlook it. It's small. It's meaningless. And to bring it up is just going to be a big deal that doesn't even need to be there. It's super small. But listen, overlooking only works when you're able to overlook it, right? So if you can't do that, you've got to handle it. You've got to handle it. Remember, their sin is not just against you. It was against God before it was against you. So the deepest love is to speak to them about it. Because reconciliation, being a little bit different, is where enemies become friends. Okay? Now hear this distinction. I'm going to say it twice. Reconciliation cannot occur without forgiveness. But forgiveness can occur without total reconciliation. Again, reconciliation, going forward with somebody, cannot occur if there is no forgiveness. But forgiveness can occur without you moving forward with that person to the same degree that you were. Trust is necessary in reconciliation and friendship, and that might take a while to reestablish, and it might not happen at all. It might not happen at all. It might not happen until you see a new heaven and a new earth. As I said, in cases that are extreme, like rape or sexual abuse or child abuse, I mean, I think it's a small box to lump things in, but there are things in that box I've seen churches, well-meaning churches with well-meaning leaders require, require, capital R, require reconciliation in abuse situations where they go forward just as they did before. And I think that just makes a victim a victim all over again. I think it's unwise. I think it's unwise to do that. Several years ago, I got to walk some people through this misunderstanding at another church. They were wise to see the gospel in the moment. And they said, but Luke, Jesus reconciled with us when we did something pretty horrible with him and he made us friends. So shouldn't we automatically reconcile in this moment and go forward as friends? And it's true, Jesus did reconcile us to him when we murdered him, but that was his choice to reconcile with us. We didn't demand it from him. Did not demand it from him. Reconciliation is going to be the decision of the innocent person, not the villain. Right? Not the villain. So we can expect forgiveness from each other because of what God has done for us. But you cannot always expect immediate reconciliation and you cannot demand friendship when there's been abuse. 
I, now I have, and you have too, seen and heard these extraordinary cases where somebody was abused and then of their own volition they come and they don't just forgive, but they march forward with that person. Arms locked in arms. And it's, it is a beautiful display of the gospel. It really is. But it was that grieved person's choice to do that. Right? I hope I'm making sense. Listen, feel free to get in touch with me if you struggle with this or if you struggle knowing if your situation is this situation. Because I know you're, some of you are listening to this and going, okay, okay, I have a situation like this. Does it count? Does it count? Is this what Luke is talking about? Do I need to get over this? Do I need to make a hard phone call? Do I need to reconcile? Do I need to just forgive and not reconcile? I'm happy, I'm, I'm happy to help with that. But overall, when you hurt each other, you own it, you confess it, so there can be forgiveness, you repent, you pray that there could be reconciliation in it, knowing that it might take a while and it might not happen, right? But can we all agree that the bulk of the time, 99% of the time, our offenses are much more petty than abusing each other? They're just a lot less significant in scale. I know they don't feel petty in the moment, but by scale they are. I think a lot of times most of what we look at and label is an irreconcilable damage and hurt to us. It's just us being obstinate. Us not believing in the gospel. That God was so good that he reconciled us that we are free to reconcile with others. So I think we extinguish key relationships very unnecessarily. You did me wrong. I won't answer your texts. I won't answer your emails. I won't be friends. I won't love you. I'm out. Right? Listen, the world, Knoxville, it traffics in a much weaker love than this new thing that God is putting out. It just it doesn't understand a love that would die for them. But Knoxville also watches you. Ministers of reconciliation who have received the ministry of reconciliation, carrying a message of reconciliation, according to Paul. And when they see us handle each other, that looks new. That looks new. That's why I've taught in our missional living classes and other classes that when you are working with those who are far from Christ, just as a hard application, when you're working with those far from Christ, feel free to bring them into your drama. Let them see how you're struggling with unforgiveness. Let them see what it looks like. Let them see the grit and the grime of what it looks like when the gospel touches a soul. Let them see that. It's not a bad move to let them see all of that. It's a bad move to pretend it's not happening. That's a bad move. Let them see what a cross-informed and gospel-shaped love looks like in action. Because they're going to see it. They're going to think it looks new. You know, we're about to have our worship team come up, and we're about to move into the last part of our service. And you'll have an opportunity during the last three-ish songs to go back, and we have bread and we have juice there. This is what we call the table, holding our elements, which is an emblem of this gospel of reconciliation, right? You go back there by yourself. You can go back there with your family, go back there with your bros, you go back there you, any way that you want to do that. But I think you have an opportunity to use it as a special moment for you today. Because as you hit the table today, I want you to consider the people that you have irreconcilable differences with that might be in this room. And as you celebrate the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus, 
as the ultimate uber minister of reconciliation, you have an opportunity to demonstrate the same love as he says, love others as I have loved you. You have the opportunity for that. If that's not you, I want you to ask yourself if you can celebrate this ministry of reconciliation towards you. Can you accept that God has loved you that much? And and who do you have irreconcilable differences with today? Are they not in this room? You might need to make a hard phone call. Might need to be courageous there. I think some of us need to repent for our unbelief that God is better than our bitterness and our protection of ourself. I think others in this room probably need to repent for insulating their lives, spraying the spray foam all around them so that nothing hits them anymore, nothing hurts them anymore. They're insulated. They've got a buffer around them. I think some of us in the room will need to take a really big step and forgive. So whenever you hit the table today or sing or pray, I want you to consider someone that you have not forgiven especially if they've done something that has changed your life in the negative, something that has just buried you, something that has scratched your soul to such a length, to such a depth, that you just didn't even think you could recover. In fact, even me talking on this level with you right now is causing you to recoil. And let me just say, the gospel of God is better for you in this moment than all of the vengeance that you're bear-hugging, trying to protect yourself. And whatever that person did to you, for however long they did it to you, is nothing compared to the blood that is on our hands as we murdered the Son of God on a cross. But the ministry of reconciliation that we receive frees us from the damaging effect of unforgiveness in our life. And I think some of you in this room might need to receive this ministry of reconciliation. Maybe you are a skeptic. Maybe you're a searcher. But Jesus says it's okay for you to put your rocks down. You could could quit swinging away on him. He is here to settle accounts with you by his blood. He He is going to balance the books. He is going to find agreement. He is going to reconcile. And pray that he would do that in your life today. Because that's what I'm going to pray for. Go ahead and stand with me. And here is the cool thing that I think we can all celebrate. There will be a day, and this might be unfathomable to some, there will be a day where you will be in eternity worshiping, laughing, playing next to people who have abused you. If they are in Christ and they are there before the glory of God just as you are, then there will be no shame in that moment. How do I know this? Isaiah 11. I'm going to read this to you. Just stay where you're at. Isaiah 11. This is the word of the Lord. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is 
This is what this means. Summary. We won't consume each other anymore. We won't hurt each other anymore. I mean, if a wolf and a lamb can lay next to each other and not just one tear the other apart, then I know that I know that I know that an abuser who is in Jesus will be next to the abused in Jesus and they will laugh and they will worship and they won't consume each other and they will do so to the glory of God and all will be well. Some of you need to know that, that you will worship in the eternity. You will worship before the Lord in such a way that there will be no sun except for his glory. And you will look to your right and you will look to your left and there will be people there that did you wrong. Unforgivable things. And if they are in Christ, you will worship with them and there will be no shame. You won't be mad about it. The glory of the Lord will be so deep and fascinating, you won't even think about it because all will be well. That's a pretty cool thing. Let me pray for you. Father, we approach this text knowing that there had been real damage done to real people. None of this is hypothetical. I know that there are lives in this room that won't trust anyone ever again. It feels like it's just they're setting themselves up for a fall. I know that there is unforgiveness in this room. I know it because we're humans. Lord, that you would overwhelm us with your gospel. You would overwhelm us with your love and your grace, that you walked across the room and invested in us when you weren't going to get any return on your investment. None. We didn't even ask for it. We weren't even looking for you. And you overwhelm us. The blood is on our hands. You didn't cause the mess. It wasn't your deal. It wasn't your problem. And yet... You took responsibility, and you reconciled us. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me, the level and the depth of your love. And it is only the depth and the level of your love that could cause an abused person to forgive the abuser. It's, it's only the level of your love that can take enemies and make them friends again. Nothing else can do this. Lord, it's only your love that can form a gospel-shaped love in us where we can, we can give deposits of love without ever even looking for withdrawals. That we don't fall in and out quickly like the world does, but we just keep giving and giving and giving and we wash feet. And our love provokes us to move uphill. So Lord, I pray for these shattered lives in this room that are shattered because somebody else put their hands on them, because somebody else did them wrong, somebody else hurt them emotionally, physically, sexually. Lord, I pray for the unforgiveness and the pain, for the, just the horror of it all, and pray that you would meet them in a very real place today. I pray for all of us in this room, Lord, that, that are going to have to forgive somebody for the 138th time. I know in my journal I have names and I have moments that seem to keep appearing page after page. Lord, that you would, you would continually grant your spirit that we would be empowered and have the endurance to, to not ever be in a position where we refuse to forgive. But every time we do loop, you have grace for us. You have grace for us. Lord, I pray for broken relationships in this room that by your gospel we'll be put back together, that you would be glorified by that. Lord, I pray for those in this room 
who are far from you because they've never received this kind of love. Lord, that today that you would pursue them, that today would be the day that their heart is changed, their heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is placed in them and they are able to beat anew for you, that that would happen this day as well. Lord, you are so good. And so as we approach the table and as we pray, as we sing, Father, that you would meet us in a very real way. We love you. You are so kind and so thoughtful and so gentle with us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.